Hello everyone, this is episode number 8. Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a laboratory and its operations from the ground up? Well, we've got a treat for you today. While a CEO may be able to create the vision of a company or business, most often it's the operations director or chief operating officer who makes that vision come to fruition. From benches to equipments, from supply chains to the overall infrastructure and all of those who support that vision fall under this individual. Our guest today is Willis Reed Button. He's the Director of Operations at Genometry. Their work introduces cutting-edge platform technology for gene expression analysis to help companies and research groups identify targeted therapies. They've developed a way of processing big expression data faster, cheaper than previous methods. Him and his team have been successful at building this company to provide great value and insight to the life science community. They've gone from the operational comforts of an established academic institute to developing and engaging in the business challenges of industry today. Let's chat with Willis today and hear about his own journey. We'll find out what awesome lessons he can teach us so that we can be successful in our own life science journey. We know his science, but what does it take to build and operate a biotech business? Let's listen in. Thank you so very much, Willis. I'm so, so happy to have you come join us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure. And I want to sincerely apologize for that last kerfuffle with that misrecording. Quite all right. Second time's charm. Yeah, um, yeah. I just kind of told the audience there that I kind of like screwed up, but went ahead and tried to jump up on the horse and try it again. So I guess this is what it is all about. About like leading you stumble, get up up on that horse and do it again. And absolutely. I guess what better topic to jump off on to <laughs> discuss yeah. how you basically like. Uh, Almost a, for all intent and purposes, launching a company, Jesus, mm -hmm. from the ground yep. up. Yep, and many uh, many pitfalls along the way. Uh, many times where things are not going as smoothly as they're planned. But uh, just like this, again, just uh, make the best of it. Try and do better the second time, and and keep it rolling forward. <laughs> so, I know you um, mentioned about your work over the broad and launch a genometry, but mm -hmm. unfortunately the audience don't, doesn't know that. So would you care to share a little bit about your transition from the broad to genometry? So let's Absolutely. first things first is start off with uh, um, a little bit about genometry and what the focus is of your company. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I've gotten started at the Broad Institute uh, developing a novel technology platform for high-throughput gene expression profiling. Uh, to enable large-scale applications that were previously uh, impossible due to uh, the expense and slow turnaround of existing technologies. And we were able to develop, uh, validate, and begin to use that program, uh, that platform at, uh, at the Broad Institute, uh, and then subsequently uh, start Genometry uh, as an independent company to allow everyone else in the rest of the world to take advantage of uh, our, our new technology, which is called L1000. So we've been out two and a half years now, um, making available those services from our core facility in Kendall Square uh, to pharma, biotech, uh, academics, and others uh, to use gene expression profiling in uh, drug discovery and development programs in a number of different tiers and applications. And it's been good fun. I mean, that's it's a mouthful. I mean. That's <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of uh, work and a lot of focus, and for the most part, you have to keep the operations like going, and it has to revolve around a lot of the science and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let's go back and a little bit further bef before the Broad Institute. And I'm like, your your background is in engineering. Why why science? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so indeed, had had gotten going on on engineering. Uh, mechanical engineering to start with, 
uh, being born out of just, you know, the, the inner tinkerer in me, even as a kid, you know, pulling things apart, putting them back together, uh, all that, all that good stuff. Um, Legos and beyond, of course. Um, and then it was during college, uh, I started branching out from, uh, the mechanical engineering track, um, getting into some more biology coursework, um, and then just really being enthralled, uh, by the intersection of engineering design, uh, and the intersection with biology. And of course the outputs of evolution, these magnificently crafted machines, us <laughs> humans and everything, all the other organisms out there are finely tuned for their, their given purpose. Um, and it just seemed like such a perfect both place to learn and derive inspiration from uh, mm -hmm. into the engineering world and also then just a lot of intriguing complexity to try and uh, address using engineering principles. Um, and just with a constantly shifting and evolving field uh, with multiple new leapfrogs of technologies, um, it just seemed like the right place for me. And continues to be the case, I think. Um, and so with then a shift to uh, biomedical engineering, uh, an undergrad, and then landing at the Broad Institute subsequently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I don't know if the audience knows this, but the Broad Institute was basically a big, huge joint venture between uh, MIT and Harvard to basically merge technology and medicine to answer some of these big, huge uh, plaguing diseases that we are constantly trying to figure out and trying to come up with new ways of like approaching uh, approaching it. and you are at that uh, epicenter of technology and medicine so how do you basically keep it all focused how do you um, kind of keep that balance yeah uh, well I think I think part of what helps keep the whole thing going is to to periodically just take a step back from the nitty-gritty and the you know, trials and tribulations of the day-to-day, -day, things that aren't working or that are, uh, and remember you know, where it is that I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing and how that fits into the larger, the larger picture of you know, global research effort and you know, trying to better understand uh, human disease to be able to make more tractable uh, improvements um, and improve people's lives. Um, and so that, that at a basic level, uh, taking time to pause and reflect on that certainly helps, helps, uh, keep things going, keep the, uh, the motivation and the fire, fire burning for that. Um, and then, you know, from there, there's still a lot to deal with, uh, and a lot to balance, uh, at the finer grained levels, both, as you mentioned before, keeping all the technology it's running, but then all the other back-end and front-end uh, things to support uh, laboratory operations and also to uh, with the customer-facing uh, aspects of it as well. And it certainly remains a challenge, keeping all those balls in the air, juggling them. Um, but, <laughs> again, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, good, a good type of challenge. So this challenge has kind of spun into a big huge operation I mean you have gone from the Broad Institute which I don't know if everybody knows is just an amazing uh, feat for operations on it's kind of a company in itself and everything runs really nicely smoothly and it's beautiful <laughs> mm -hmm. just even work in that uh, work in that area and the resources the wealth of resources that place has it's almost like a playground if you will However, you were going from that to like nothing. So I mean, as a new, as a new, I guess entrepreneur, if you will, like, how do you start? How do you like? I mean, how do you create your own physical space from that? Yeah. So it it was indeed a very big change, and uh, exactly as you highlight, having a huge wealth of both people and experts in many different fields, as well as the research um, research insight as well as in the resources to purchase equipment and so on and having much of that uh, just be behind the scenes um, as part of a big institution that there are whole groups and teams devoted towards uh, taking care of those back-end uh, those back-end tasks so that you know as a researcher much of that is invisible um, 
for me, I was. Uh, you were them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in a good position uh, while at the Broad Institute um, as part of our project to be interacting and interfacing with with many of those uh, kind of back end suppliers uh-huh, um, uh-huh. to be able to gain some visibility on what was required to you know get the necessary reagents resources you know, to the bench top, and that having explored that and had some interaction um, with those teams, even though it was a limited form uh, of supply chain management, given they were all right there, was certainly helpful to um, paint a picture in my mind, at least some of the aspects that would be required uh, doing it then on my and our own. Um, It's still a far cry from the practicalities of having to uh, get through all that on my own, but... um, but it was certainly helpful while uh, while at the Broad, again, to have been at least having a mind of and paying attention to those various uh, required uh, pillars uh, that were required to keep the operation there going. And then knowing at least what I had to set out to replicate once we had set out on our own. And even though I had an idea of what those were at a high level, um, it was still a lot of then getting into the details and just figuring out what I still didn't know. Um, Which I'm sure you were like, a lot. (laughs) Quite a lot. But even that awareness, too, is helpful to just know that you only are going to have some vague conceptions of what's going on. But be open to that. Keep an eye out for those things that are going to trip you up and things that you can learn that you're not aware of previously. Uh, Try and build in, you know, some flexibility starting things early to be able to give yourself the latitude when things inevitably take longer and require more intermediate steps than you than you think they might uh, to try and build in a little bit of that flexibility so you don't uh, get yourself in too much of a crunched position. So then, so then early on you guys were going through um, vent, uh, ventures and investors to bring up and raise enough money to get started <laughs> and going. How do you outline, how do you create the business plan and like, and, and all of the resources that you'll need and that pricing structure? I mean, like, there's too much to think about. Like, and then when you start actually building it, do you like, like, I, we only have enough dollars for this, we only have enough dollars for that. And it's, it's a kind of like a, a, a rat race, if you will. How did you it's, balance that out? Yeah, it's very tricky. Um, there are a couple of interesting points uh, in our search for funding and, and looking for the right investors. Uh, and one of those was indeed just approaching it from that mindset, not just to try and find money wherever it was available, but to try and also find uh, investors, either institutions or individuals, networks, who had been through somewhat similar experiences uh that we were trying to start, who had background, experience, and knowledge, who would be able to uh, confer some of their experiences to us. Mm. And again, approaching it, you know, it may be a cliche, but approaching it like a relationship, right? Not just that you just want to get a withdrawal and get mm-hmm. some money in the bank, but find a good match and and uh, somebody or a group who can help support you as you grow and inform you of some of the uh, the aspects that that you might not be aware of. I think that also along those lines is even trying to conceptualize then how much you need and not to either sell yourself short and try and be too lean and not be able to have the resources that you need, but on the other hand, not to uh, get too too overly enthusiastic about raising too much money. that will then, you know, have to give away too much equity or you don't need that capital. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and trying to find out what that happy balance is, uh, is tricky. And trying to draw upon, you know, what, uh, what you can ascertain up front as far as, you know, what your market will be. But uh, a lot of those projections, um, you know, are just our guesses of things that might be true. <laughs> and trying to just uh, play around with some of those, you know, some of those models, and just say, "All right, well, I don't know what you know uh, what the given market will be in the first year, but let's just explore and see if you know if it's X, then what happens down the road? If it's Y, what happens?" To try and just play some of those those numbers games ahead of time, just to see what happens, um, and have kind of a framework to to um, 
calculate the, the financial impact, um, just to convince yourself that you're, you're going along in generally the right direction because it's always going to change after you're, after you're off and running. Uh, some of the expectations that, that you had um, won't be true. Some, hopefully, most of them will. Um, it's just like predicting the Boston weather in the springtime. <laughs> exactly. You can gather as much data as you can, but still go forward knowing that that only goes so far and that things are bound to change and be unpredictable. So, I mean, I have a lot of other friends and colleagues that are entrepreneurs themselves, and they do a lot of that like predictive analysis as well as the... I should have say just creating that business plan, but I come across so many people that just say the business plan is for two things. It's one, it's for the the bankers, <laughs> and two for your bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so yeah, it's much, one of those things. That, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So, how much of how much of your like uh, pre planning do you follow, and how much do you sit there and like stay adhere to it, or mm does it end up in upon the bookshelf or even do you have investors that like, no, this is the plan that you put forth and we're only paying for these types of resources, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I mean, it is a, uh, required prerequisite, um, to go through, but then the relevance downstream, which are off and running, <laughs> um, can be, uh, either closer or farther away from your, from your initial, uh, projections. So I think that it's certainly, again, crucial to be able to have a business plan that's cogent enough to be able to demonstrate mm -hmm. to potential investors that you've at least thought through things in enough detail that you're not going in without putting in any thought. I think that's <laughs> largely uh, the point is just demonstrate that, yeah, there are unknowns, but you know I've considered a number of factors and I've at least gone out and put in the effort to try and gather the information uh, that makes this relevant. Um, but, but that it's not going to be set in stone and that it, it shouldn't be set in stone. Uh, and that would be an unfortunate position to be in, to be held to your you know, initial pitching uh, business plan once you're actually getting up and going. Um, it's, it's a useful tool just to benchmark, to just evaluate and just for your own learning to say, oh, you know, what assumptions did we make in, in putting this business model together? And, oh, okay, yeah, these just aren't blatantly not true. I can just, you know, learn from that. Um, I think that, that also then going forward, too, um, it's important not to get lost and be consumed too much by the details of a given business plan um, and that there are obviously practical financial constraints that you need to be aware of, um, but to pay enough attention to make sure that as in the early phases that, that those are in solid footing, but then to devote your time and attention to, uh, especially at the beginning, just making sure that things are up and running, making sure that you have what you need to be able to um, get your product, get your platform launched uh, and not to obsess overly much in the early days, you know, about how all those things will perpetuate uh, downstream through through the business model. So it's a good guide to have. It's a good thing to just revisit and, and evaluate. But then once you're you are off and running, then you'll be able to reconstruct a better framework given the more detailed information you have from living it for a while. So did you have mentors, consultants, advisors, or do you, did you depend on? investors to like kind of help and guide you or give you uh, like an outline especially like in I'm sure like a lot of biotechs there's especially in this town you can throw uh you can throw a rock and hit a hit a consultant so <laughs> but I mean those Absolutely. usually come at a uh, hefty coin so how do you take advice or how do you look and search for advice what are some been some of the more useful advice <laughs> So, um, our, yeah, so our team going in um, didn't have entrepreneurial experience um, beforehand. Um, we were going into this uh, as relative uh, newbies uh, to the business world. Um, and that as such, it was important. And again, that was part of, you know, the search for, uh, for investment uh, and to find folks who had been, 
uh, in a similar industry to ours. Mm-hmm. And again, to even specifically, you know, as a platform technology company, uh, you know, completely different world than, you know, a, a, a biotech company focused on trying to discover new medicines themselves uh, and that the operation and funding are very different. And so that we certainly were able to find a very good match uh, of some experienced people who had been through um, the process of both starting as well as then selling uh, platform technology companies like ours uh, who have been then extremely helpful um, in helping to guide us and highlight both some of the um, pitfalls to watch out for initially as well as now, again, for us, uh, a few years in, you know, what's important to focus on now that we have indeed gotten things up and up and running. Um, and so that has been helpful, but but still for the most part on the ground and in the details, it was it was just us, us diving in and being aware that there were many new things that we were confront um, and just doing the best to make it up as we went along and ask people who we knew, both investors as well as just within, you know, network of folks um, for advice along the way. Uh, but it was a lot, a lot of unknowns and a lot of, again, just trying to take stock and make decisions along the way, given the information we had, um, which we were able to do successfully, I think partly too, because of uh, just a good close-knit small team being able to uh, hash things out and banter back and forth and explore different possibilities. Uh, it's important to have that flexibility and freedom uh, to do that. Yeah, so yeah. often scientists are kind of, I guess, given the raw end of the deal on the business side and kind of criticized for their lack of business experience. And How do you... How does one in science compensate for that, and are there are there like transferable skills that you were able to highlight to even investors to people that uh, in the business side kind of were like, um, I don't know if I'm uh, I'm really buying your product or your services. How do you mm-hmm. communicate that side, or like how do you compensate for that? Because I mean, all three of you were straight scientists. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, even just that knowledge and awareness that there are those aspects that you, that you don't know or are not familiar with um, on the financial and the business end of things uh, is the first step just to, to realize that there's much to learn there. Um, I think that that then helps, you know, even if, if you're considering before launching a new venture, um, it, it helps to, to have that idea then brings your focus and brings your attention to new details that you might not have been aware of before. So again, if you're just a researcher in an academic environment, um, you have a certain perspective um, on things, but even considering that you would like to commercialize either product or offering, um, and then starting to pick out, okay, again, what are the practical constraints that I'm faced by? What are the, the trade-offs? Um, what will I need to make decisions about? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. If, if resources and money is, is tight. Um, so, again, <laughs> I think starting off just to know that based on your own background that there are going to be new experiences. Uh, I think that we had a little bit of that, both that awareness as well as, uh, as some experience um, on the business side um, just here and there uh, that were indeed helpful mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to us. Um, to be able to draw upon, and as you said, too, to just to point to investors to say that, you know, we are not completely ignorant uh, of this world and have had some uh, some adjacencies that have helped inform our, our understanding of the, you know, the practical constraints that drive a business. Um, I know that for myself, I, I did indeed, um, with with a view towards, towards genometry, um, I ended up taking uh, some courses at Harvard Extension uh, School in both financial accounting as well as operations management um, that even though they're academic, uh, were still very helpful to, again, just illustrate those other approaches that would be helpful uh, down the road. It's funny because one of my friends who's actually a VC guy, he says uh, a lot of the times when he decides on people to invest in, he looks at that, that exactly what you just did you said hey i've got a uh, i'm limited in this knowledge i'm going to seek this out and like uh, educate myself and he goes that's 
it's a good sign of that you're going to do whatever it takes to move that ball forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really critical, especially at the early stages and starting up. And I guess for a good portion of the time, it's you guys have two parts. You're actually maybe three parts. You have one getting the technology to a certain point where you can constantly like um, effectively deliver it consistently and mm -hmm. and dependably mm -hmm. especially as a startup <laughs> and then two is to run the operational side of things and the business side and then three the customer uh, the front face of the customer and relationships and they have to like know that this is happening in the background seamlessly like mm -hmm. <laughs> without any uh without any knowledge because you want to instill that confidence with the customers and I'm sure you guys early on had to wear so many hats. Mm -hmm. So can you share with us a little bit of those hat wearing strategies and how did you man manage that? Yeah, so it's exactly, um, you know, those three main fronts, again, getting all the back end uh, requirements in place, getting the actual technology, then again, working and even so for us, we were in a, a pretty good position having developed a fairly uh, robust platform um, in one institution and then be ready to spin that off. But again, even despite that, there are still a number of, of hurdles that things again are not just going to plug and play and work right out of the box with, with <laughs> no issues. Um, and so it still certainly requires uh, a lot of And then exactly as you say, too, then both engaging customers and as well as you know, portraying that image of a, of a company, even though it's a startup that is, that is healthy, that is uh, able to deliver a given product or service reliably. Um, it's a lot of bouncing around, um, it's true. And the, the need to just refocus and pivot on a moment's notice uh, because priorities change very, very quickly. <laughs> you know? Again, one of those back-end things goes wrong or, you know, a, a given vendor doesn't have something, you know, in stock, um, all of a sudden, yeah, you, you have to pay a lot of attention to that, to that uh, supply chain and finding another source and getting ahead on that lead time. And then, you know, a customer comes up with a question, re-pivot there. Um, so the speed of being able to refocus is key. I think that having uh, a good organi organized framework in place such that you can just drop something and focus on something else but have the confidence that what you uh, pivoted away from will remain organized and up-to-date where it is and ready once you're able to return to it. Uh, having that, that robust organizational framework helps uh, one to be able to uh, rapidly transition from one area to another without then worrying that they won't be able to find all the pieces uh, that you've been working with previously. So you kind of, as you as you start to develop the the system, you start realizing that there is a, I guess, all the operational supply chains and trying to make sure all the pieces are together, and then it becomes more. Uh, just a repeatable system, right? Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. for yourself, yep, you were a big part of like uh, development, developing the L1000 technology. I mean, mm -hmm. you spent a significant portion of your time. I mean, like if anybody knew it, uh, frontward and backwards, you were that that person. But now it's you had to scale that up so much into an actual profitable company, mm -hmm. and that's that's quite the quite the feat. And so then I'm going to transition here is like, how do you then teach that into, uh, because you can't do everything and you're going to eventually like, you had to like eventually start recruiting and hiring people to, to do what you did to uh, create that system. And let's talk a little bit about that as you started, as you guys started bringing on people and mm -hmm. have them uh, basically recapitulate the same processes that you did. That's got a bit. That had to have been difficult. Absolutely, and it's again, it's it's challenging <laughs> to figure something out uh, on your own, first of all. But to then be able to yeah, convey and and teach others, to get them on board, 
is an additional and different type of challenge. Um, and it, you know, it takes being, being open and willing to communicate and to be flexible with, with other people, um, but also then recognizing what is important and what it is you're looking for in the people that you're, you're bringing on board. Um, what were you for us, for? Well, so for us, we still have a uh, um, and as a result, I mean, it's always it's always important, no matter the size of the institution, but especially because we're we're so small, it's not only the you know the technical prerequisites, um, you know, that we're looking for, whether and for a data analysis position, whether it's for a research technician position, uh, having the background experience, but even more so than that is is the personality type that would fit well with the team and. For us, that was looking for for people who were uh, proactive and independent and excited to learn, to just be complacent and doing just their one thing, but who would be also joining us in in continuing to explore the experience and eager to dive in and and excited to to see what uh, what else was out there and what other opportunities that this small dynamic uh, environment had for them. Um, and so for us in bringing more people on board and saying I'm trying to find people with that mentality um, has been a priority and has been successful. And so even for us with folks who didn't necessarily have uh, tons of experience uh, in, a given, um, in a given area, because of course, our visible a reasonable amount, uh, but again, who really just manifested that that similar curiosity and desire for adventure and the adventure of a, of a small start uh, was important and has has continued to be a good a good focus for us to have. How did you find them? How did you screen for them? What were some particular uh, criterias and behaviors, or even uh, was it was there astral parts within their CV that kind of like highlighted their ability to troubleshoot uh, certain situations? Mm -hmm. Were you looking for purely PhDs? Were you looking for BSs? Were you looking for business background, or do you prefer just uh, straight with a science uh, science background, which was much more advantageous? Yeah, we've uh, gone on two different tracks, but on the PhD side, um, as well as then um, on the research technician side for for undergraduate degree, um, we relied on network first and foremost to just see who we knew, who knew somebody who um, might be amenable, and to use that as a first pass to try and find uh, word of mouth, um, and again have it just. Uh, folks that we were close with, vouch for them, um, had that confidence that again they they were good and engaged. Um, we've also then used uh, LinkedIn uh, to be able to cast a pretty wide net really? for folks for folks who then were not within um, or we were not able to find somebody within our network directly. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That LinkedIn uh, provide a pretty good again a wide swath to attract uh, a number of different candidates. Um, and there, it was, it was important for us too to just take our time um, and not try and rush rush that process just to fill the slot just because we wanted to get it going, but concentrating on making sure that, that we'd find someone not only who would be able to do the basic work, but as I mentioned before, who would fit in and have the, uh, the other personality um, attributes that we're looking for. Uh, and that patience uh, certainly paid off. Hire slow, hire slow. Yeah, yeah, which which can be a challenge again when you're eager when you're eager to move forward, um, but it is worth I think again being being careful about that and defining what it is that you that you're looking for that you need what capabilities you require, uh, and then taking your time to to make sure that you get somebody who will not only fill those technical prerequisites but who will be you know a pleasure to work with and who who will be able to have fun uh, exploring, exploring new things with. <laughs> Got to filter out the troublemakers. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. That's something that, you know, again, as a small, as a small organization, uh, you know, even just one, one person who's either just not particularly motivated or yeah, too much of a, 
uh, <laughs> a maverick doing their own thing without without being flexible and closely with the group uh, can have a big impact. Um, we actually, yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I think we we see this all the time in in certain groups where it's everybody's productive, but then you'll see one bad seed, one bad apple that's not motivated enough, or that that's that's not meeting the deliverables, that's not even like helpful, or or just consuming much more time and resources, or they just can't keep up. And I think it it draws a lot of that energy out from people around. And you talked about, you actually talk a lot about the the soft side of, of management. And I don't think enough of us, particularly in science, that we address enough of the, the soft management skills. We, we know the finances, we know the, the metrics and measurements, we know the technical aspects, but at the end of the day, it's, it's the people that we're, we're managing and, and every single person has that emotional uh, impact. And how do you kind of keep it together as a, as a leader? I mean, that's, that's kind of yeah. difficult. It's definitely <laughs> a challenge and it's been, it's been a learning experience uh, for me, certainly. Uh, <laughs> And a very different, you know, even having had some of that experience, uh, you know, at a larger institution at the Broad previously, but it's just a whole other ball game when it's, you know, just you guys, just a small team um, doing your own thing. It just makes it that, you know, that much more direct. There's not as much flexibility, not as many, you know, other uh, resources to be able to lean on um, as far as people go. Um, and so it certainly, again, takes takes uh, that consideration of who to bring on board up front, make a careful consideration because you know that you're going to have to then uh, live with them and deal with them (laughs) for a while, a while to come. Um, I'll say just as a a little bit of an extension of the previous conversation, we've had a few uh, consultants, contractors who we have brought on board, um, not in full-time capacity, but that then did not turn out to be a good fit, um, whether both from a, personality kind of attitude engagement uh or work working style um and that was that was uh that was an interesting learning experience there and it was a challenge to know you know at what point is it again from a managerial perspective at what point do you just need to be more flexible and adapt to somebody else's style to help craft uh, a productive uh relationship and, and working environment and when is it does it reach a point where that effort uh, is consuming too much of your own time that that needs to be diverted elsewhere? Um, when is it? When you know? When do you reach that point where you realize that it's just it's just not worth it, and it's, <laughs> it'll be better for you. It'll be better for them just to, you know, part ways there. Um, and so that was that was tough. Um, I think a what lot of that te- too. What did it teach you about yourself? Yeah, so it's interesting both on uh, kind of the technical side and laying out expectations for this given product, for this given uh, outcome, like here are the things that we expect that will, that's what done means, but that also to define uh, along the way that, you know, this is the way in which we work and we like to, you know, be able to work independently, but circle back together, you know, on a daily basis to to briefly check in on things and that we uh, want to be open to discussing and taking new approaches uh, to things, um, and just making sure that, that other people, uh, again, in our case, consultants, um, and contractors were amenable with that strategy. And, uh, in one particular case, we, I mean, we didn't, I don't think did, uh, as good of a job as we could have outlining both of those sides up front. And it then took a little while, uh, which ended up being, again, kind of a waste for both of us. Uh, before it became clear that that uh, those expectations were, were not going to be uh, met or that wasn't going to be a uh, uh, productive way to, to work together. I like that. I like this is the way we work and defining done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's that's always hard when people uh, try to have like end goals and like what is the defined end goal. And especially when you're trying to improve on something or quote-unquote perfect something, we already know that there's no such thing as perfection <laughs> and you can improve forever. 
Mm -hmm. So therefore, Absolutely. it makes things a little bit more abstract. And so therefore, defining end goals becomes a challenge. Mm -hmm. And you always like constantly, incessantly want to optimize. My always favorite mm -hmm. thing is uh, here is they're not working hard enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. So defining those kinds of uh, those kinds of points, like how do you give your people autonomy, but then how do you uh, create metrics and measurements that you know that they are that they're hitting certain goals or hitting certain marks? What are some of those things that you've been able to like know that this person is a very good worker, this person is not, or this person is not learning or doing really well? We might have mm -hmm. to find that like, Ooh, I think it's time to let this person go. Yep, yep. Um, and again, I mean, it does come back to just the clarity and communication of expectations um, and yeah, what, what done looks like, what's good enough. Um, and also then, you know, what failure looks like, you know, when to walk away, whether it's for a given project or a product or a relationship with, with the person to, you know, defining, you know, at the outset, okay, you know, we'll give this six months and, and see how it goes. And these are the things we hope to accomplish within that time. And if those are not uh, accomplished in this time period, then you know, let's take that as an opportunity to reevaluate um, whether this is going to to work out in the long run. Um, and it, it can be tough to uh, to define those things ahead of time, uh, and it takes some introspection. It takes some work to really think through, you know, what it is that you really want, and then to be able to capture that uh, explicitly. That's not too hand wavy. That that allows other people to understand it too. You know, because if you can't define your own version of success, then how can you expect, you know, somebody else to achieve that? Um, and so that, that making things as specific uh, as possible up front uh, goes a long way uh, towards enabling that, that to happen. And I think that, too, it's, it's you know, then on a day-to-day -day basis, a balance between, you know, uh, autonomy and productivity and the company pushing goals and managing macro or micro managing, depending. Um, and, you know, I think my approach and that's, it's been evolving, but is indeed to, to try and specifically define those, those end goals and ask for feedback initially up front. See, you know, what do we think about this? Are these reasonable? What are the suggestions or concerns about that? And have those discussions up front. Uh, and then to just, you know, have periodic but not not too periodic <laughs> check-ins, you know, as to, as to progress, whether there are uh, problems that are coming up, whether you know, check-in to make sure that things aren't going off down the side tangent uh, that's diverting uh, diverting efforts from from what it is that, that actually matters. Um, and finding that balance uh, is tricky, and I think it that that differs too, depending on the people you're working with, depending on the projects you're working on, uh, uh, and it takes just awareness that that will have to be fine-tuned. Uh, but that again, clear, clearly defined and communicated expectations up front, uh, and then the flexibility to you know periodically monitor and check in, and have the freedom to raise concerns as you go forward. Uh, is a good, it's a good structure and a good way to good way to do it. So you were saying earlier about certain types of people that you were looking for, those that are willing to learn, to are willing to be independent, that they can figure things out on their own. But one of the things that I know that this ends up becoming like is a contrast to the academic setting. And then now going from academia to industry, where academia lends a lot of leeway to the learning practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can be you can have somebody in, in academia for such a long time struggling, struggling, but just as long as they're learning and, and mm -hmm. developing themselves they can be there for quite a bit of some time. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. there's certain thresholds in industry. I mean, I, I served some time in industry for several mm -hmm. years, and it was hard for me to stay within some of those boundaries because I found everything very interesting, mm -hmm. and I'd love yeah. to explore certain texts, certain, certain science, and that's kind of what propelled me back into the academic setting. Mm -hmm. So I found that kind of balance really difficult. Did you experience that as, as well as you're like, wow, there's so much that is new and I want to learn, but you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa let's stay focused. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a very good point that you raise. It's yeah, you want to have that curiosity. You want people to be eager to learn, but but then you need to have a practical filter on there. Um, <laughs> and that yeah, yeah there's a limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that finding that that balance between you know forward productivity in a, in a defined way, and then on the side to have a latitude to explore things uh, and try and focus and constrain to a certain extent those avenues of exploration on ones that either will directly uh, add value to the company or at least provide the opportunity to add value to the company. It's okay to spend some time trying something that turns out not to work. Um, Learning but that has to value. But that has to be balanced again and prioritizing where where to spend time. Um, again, both for the the day to day work as well as then the side the side projects and and learning and exploring. Um, and that that academic interest is a great thing, but that it does need to be uh, balanced uh, in, by the practical constraints of the business. And that for well, both individuals as well as then managers to try and survey the scene uh, to see what's a good uh, intersection between things that are both engaging and interesting, but also have the promise to really transform or enable a new approach or a new product or a new uh, analysis um, that that is directly relevant to the business. Um, and again, you're right that uh, that that can be difficult to balance. Um, I think that we try and be flexible, but also very focused on that and, and making sure that it, that it will, that these various side projects will at least have the potential um, to change the way we go about our business. So it's kind of like, what was it? I don't think Google has it anymore, but Google had that like uh, mm, 20% like, time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you guys kind of like incorporate something a little bit like that, but Let's make the majority of us moving it forward. Right, and not, not, not quite as structured as that, although I know that, yeah, that Google, I mean, that was where Gmail came from. Any number of the, the you know, the Google products ended yeah. up coming out of that 20% that rule. Um, and it's not, again, it's, you know, it's not that we're structuring things in that, in that manner. Um, but again, at least in, in my, uh, you know, direct management too, just trying to integrate New tools, new new approaches um, to at least just increase the exposure um, of myself and, and coworkers uh, to new resources, to new approaches, new technologies um, to both just get a better sense of the horizon and then keep an eye out for um, amongst these these new uh, these new explorations again, which are going to be the more promising areas to divert more time to to explore further uh, and to encourage others to explore uh, because of the potential gain that they'll, they'll provide geometry. Oh. What tools have you found to be successful to help you manage all of these systems, all of these processes, and even all of these personnel? I mean, at the end of the day, like I've come across different institutions, different businesses, different companies, and I've seen them use some of the most simplistic easy to use tools to the most complicated and most labor intensive tools it actually devalued rather than add uh, valued what were some of the tools that you explored and used to this day and that like have been amazing like uh, came across one person she says she uses everything Google just everything is Google for mm. her and she was like it's just stripped down easy but then I've seen some people have built-in systems like uh, what was it? Um, they were using Basecamp that actually mm -hmm. was kind of a little mm -hmm. bit integrated into their company that actually helped them manage projects. But that was much more customizable. What were some of the tools that you found useful? Yeah, so for my own approach, uh, been a convert early on to uh, getting things done and David Allen GTD <laughs> yes, mentality GTD. and approach. GTD, yes. And that has been, uh, again, a really good fit for me. It's been, uh, you know, a long process uh, of, you know, first finding and coming across his book and laying out that principles. Such again, an engineer. Some of the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, indeed, guilty as charged. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, it echoes actually some of the things I've already been mentioning. um, But as far as, again, defining what done looks like, trying to define projects and and outcomes and externalize all the thoughts in your head and get them down in contexts and next actions to help things move forward. But that's that's an approach that has, has worked for me very well and I've learned how to work that system and make that system work for me uh, in a way that uh, I'm not wasting a ton of time keeping it up to date, you know, three hours every day just doing that is, is no good. Um, but a way that, uh, that, you know, tending to that garden in a way that, that uh, bears a lot of fruit. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do realize that that's, you know, that is me and uh, my personality. So I'm not trying to impose that upon everyone uh, who I work with because that's not, not the right way to, uh, to go forward, um, but to still try and highlight and communicate some of the benefits uh, mm-hmm, that such an approach mm-hmm. can entail. Um, I think that, you know, uh, kind of alongside that, though I've been a big list guy, uh, it's helpful to have, you know, checklists, you know, routine things. Uh, we use uh, Workflowy, which is just a pretty simple oh, online Workflow-y. outliner. Um, which is good because again, I just I like lists and I like outlines. Uh, workflow is great just because it's it's easy to collaborate. It's very simple, you know, not much overhead. Multiple people can share given lists uh, and documents. Um, so pretty low low overhead is definitely key. Again, I've got my own more complex system, but that especially in in group settings and in collaborations, to really keep the uh, the engagement bar really low, just to make sure that. You know, you're not structuring it too much. That's just going to drive people away or disincentivize them to use the given tool. Mm-hmm. That you really have to pay attention and try to make it as easy as possible, um, so that people actually use it. Um, so yeah, we actually do keep things uh, as a team fairly simple. We, you know, we do use some Google spreadsheets for some real-time tracking. Once again, we can all uh, collaborate on and look at individually. We've got you know just shared um, shared file structures with well organized. Uh, folders and files relevant to different projects there. Um, it takes you know a periodic review to make sure that things are fresh and current uh, and don't get too far uh, out of date and stale. Um, and we've been you know evolving. it's it's worth keeping an eye out for for new approaches, new frameworks. Uh, but again, with the balance that that sometimes those can be very time consuming even to just to explore or get set up and that, that activation energy can be high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the most part, we try and keep it, keep it simple, keep things online and accessible, you know, one location for everything, one version of everything just so that prevents confusion and, and uh, you know, again, things just getting too diffuse and spread all over the place again so that we can stay organized and be able to pivot rapidly and find what we want when we want it, where we expect it. Yeah, I always get the... Which is better, Excel or spreadsheets? Or which is better, the Basecamp or the Microsoft uh, suite? And I'm like, you know what? The best one is the one that gets used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you hit the nail on the head. It is the one, the garden that gets tended the most bears the best fruit. And that just it's a nod to your checklist and to be able to systematically go through the things and move on to the next. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if you're spending too much time, quote unquote, figuring things out, it's uh, it's it's not moving that uh, that ball forward or moving those metrics forward. Yep, yep, yeah. You gotta keep things organized so that you can. You know, decide what to do and reprioritize as needed. But then also, yeah, you know, having just those routine checklists in place just to make sure that you know you're covering your trail and make sure that there's you know nothing that you just forgot to attend to that's gonna you know come up and bite you. Uh, so having those, you know, we've got various laboratory upkeep checklists. We've got kind of higher level review checklists just to say, all right, you know, every however long, whether it's a month or every quarter or something like, you know, here are the, you know, the main themes or, or core areas of responsibility for uh, either individuals or us as a company. Well, let's just take a look over it together and, and take a look and make sure that there's nothing that we've neglected that's falling below the radar. And that just having and having built that support system so that you don't have to worry that you'd have the confidence. Yeah, we'll, we'll review these things in a, 
you know, in a periodic fashion, uh, then make sure that we're not uh, deviating too far from where we want to be or make sure that, again, we're not dropping the ball on something big. Uh, it's a great peace of mind to be able to have and allows you to then focus on what it is that you're dealing with at the given time because uh, <laughs> that stuff is important and requires a lot of attention to detail. Uh, yeah, so that's why I, I cringe at businesses and companies that have a too bloated business administrative services when in actuality mm. if it's the actual uh, product development and business itself that actually moves uh, moves the money and mm -hmm. I like how you've been creating very easy self-sustaining systems that like mm. it's just repeat and wash and mm -hmm. focus more of your energy and efforts toward uh, towards the, the technology that you're developing exactly. with customers Yep, free up your brain and your time to worry about those higher level tricky problems and try and explore new avenues forward. And yeah, just routinize the background stuff to make sure that it can continue on, on autopilot so you can focus on, you know, the next the next big thing within the company. Yeah. So what is the next big uh, big thing with with uh genometry and Willis? Yeah, so things are going quite well against I'm not sure actually a couple people have asked me lately as far as the definition of, of a startup company and is there a time frame set on that? Is it a number of people that but constrains like newlywed. that? Yeah, yeah, I guess it's probably similar. Although hopefully that's a little bit more defined in a number of people uh, involved. <laughs> but so yeah, two and a half, two and a half years in, um, things are going well. We've got uh, repeat customers coming back, trying out. Um, again, new applications for gene expression profiling. Uh, we're focusing on, on a number of different things, trying to expand out our kind of online analytic framework to help our clients to more rapidly and easily make sense of the mountains of data that they're able to now generate. Uh, it's been very helpful for us to you know, have some early adopter, some champion clients of ours that we can work with to try and figure out what will be most helpful for them, uh, you know, people who are, have built up a, a good relationship with uh, to try and then inform where we guard our efforts um, that we can then translate to them as well as other clients. Um, so I'd say that, yeah, certainly uh, on a, many different fronts, but that the uh, development and expansion of, uh, of our online analysis platforms um, is a big focus and it's exciting uh, and and along along with trying to incentivize and help people both scale up the scope of their experiments and, and get into new new areas uh, to try and think of, of ways to better help them leverage that data towards you know what the whole point is which is to make better and more informed decisions about how to develop new drugs faster and easier and get them uh, into clinical trials so who who is your ideal uh, target types of clients? I mean, who do you guys work the best with? I mean, this is a little bit of a plug for genometry, but like whoever's out there listening, yeah, say we're looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So best? the the primary uh, advantage that our technology provides is really just large scale experiments. So we're not just trying to make existing types of gene expression profiling experiments cheaper. We're trying to really just elevate the scale of, of the number of samples and therefore then the number of different experimental axes that, that you can explore, whether that's you know go in really true library scale profiling, whether that's looking across many different biological contexts and backgrounds or dense concentration ranges to understand mechanisms of the given small molecule. Um, so we've got a variety of different uh, types of clients. Our favorite ones are the ones who are audacious and bold about really embracing that, that philosophy of just doing things at a huge scale, um, not just keeping constrained within you know the previous uh, assumptions of, of the way things are done. Um, we always like working with people who, are, again, are trying new things uh, along those lines, uh, mm -hmm. exploring uh, new areas of, of biology. Um, and so we've got a variety of clients. I mean, uh, it's true that a number uh, or many of our, our 
largest ones are are big pharma companies because then they've got the scale of libraries um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that are amenable. But we are, we're working with a number of different both biotech companies and other academics as well who are again interested in uh, <laughs> doing cool stuff and advancing uh, advancing the field of using gene expression uh, to make make more informed decisions and, and biological discoveries. Um, and the pace at which data is being produced and the limitations within bioinformatics and computational research and work and you guys are like that conduit between mm -hmm. all the data being produced to actually having making use of the knowledge actually be useful and so we absolutely we striving thank you so very much striving for that. to be <laughs> so my last question is what is your definition of a life science leader? Yeah, so uh, I think I think that uh, a life science leader is uh, somebody who who has a vision, who has an idea of either a technology or an approach or something that that will will make a significant change uh, in the status quo in the way that things are done. Um, and that can come in a whole variety of different different avenues and ways, but uh, along with that that vision that they are committed to, that they believe in, uh, has to come the ability to communicate that and to communicate that to a wide range of audiences, from both you know the highest technical specialists in a given field to explain the nuances and reasons why their own particular approach uh, will deliver the benefits that are that are needed, uh, but also to be able to to simplify it and zoom out and and explain why to somebody without any technical background in, th in that given area why what they're doing and what they want to happen matters, hmm. uh, and the flexibility and and ability to communicate that message, uh, I think, is crucial and important. And you know, again, all the technical skill um, and you know, thoughts and dreams for a better future are great. But without the ability to translate those uh, and to be able to both illustrate to others and convince them as to why that's important, you know, then it's all for naught. So uh, I think that that especially for for leaders that that. It's, it's that communication aspect uh, that is really crucial and really makes makes a good leader. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, I about a few years back listened to a talk by Eric Lander, um, a Broad, and he was communicating to a bunch of uh, Harvard med students, and one of the questions was asked is at the forefront of communications, science is still suffering from that ability to communicate mm -hmm. to the greater audience. And what would your recommendation be? He goes, talk to your grandmother, <laughs> talk to you, uh, your family, talk to everyone about what you do. Mm -hmm. The ability to be able to communicate to a vast audience is really critical. This is mm -hmm. why do you think I still teach freshman molecular biology. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome, indeed, true. Yeah. So. And yeah, it's and it's hard. I mean, it does. I mean, it takes it takes work to get there, and it takes practice to be able to dial up and dial down the complexity or level of detail um, to describe what you do. And it can be hard to get outside of your own head when you've been working in something for so long, and you just you know assume that of course everyone knows all the things I know. But <laughs> the ability to take yourself outside and, and evaluate from somebody else's perspective is a valuable one. Um, and so, yeah, he, he, he's got the right idea, that's for sure. <laughs> well, Willis, you've got the right idea and you're implementing that <laughs> right idea. And we in the life science community completely thank you for that. Well, it's, it's, uh, I'm lucky to, uh, to be where I am and to have the opportunities to work with awesome people doing cool stuff. And I'm uh, grateful for that every day. Thank you so very much. So we'll go ahead and leave all your information and ways of contacting you through Genometry and to explore a little bit more of your guys' amazing technology. And even for those that would love to follow in your footsteps, 
I'm sure you'll probably get a slew of those. So thank you Sounds so very excellent. much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Damien. Awesome, Willis. Thank you again. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. What a great scientist and amazing business leader. Thanks again, Willis. If you'd like to know more about Willis and his company, please go check out our show notes and you'll see a link to all of his great published material and company information at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash podcast forward slash episode eight. Thank you for listening to the Leading Life Science radio podcast. We'd love to hear from you, the listener. So please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear about from our guests that could help you on your journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and share it with friends or colleagues who might also benefit from this journey. Also, lastly, please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences. Till the next time, happy sciencing. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz of the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast.